Thank you, gracious Heavenly Father, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have sought to make yourself known to your people. You've spoken in the creation that you have given us. You've spoken in your revealed word. We pray that by your spirit, we would understand these deep, eternal truths today. That as we read Psalm 104, that as I speak, our meditations would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear God's word from Psalm 104. We'll be reading the entire psalm, although we'll be focusing on verses 24 through 35. Last week's sermon was the first half of the psalm, and this week we will finish it together. So let's read now from God's word, Psalm 104, starting in verse 1, but remembering that our sermon will focus in starting on verse 24. Hear now the very words of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted, and them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. 
When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. If you've ever walked around a city, you've noticed not all the buildings look the same. Especially if you go over to Europe, where the cities are much older than what we find here in the New World you'll find that there is old architecture with towering spires and there's new architecture that looks like a piece of aluminum foil. Various styles over long periods of time. Imagine it all being designed by the same architect. It's stunning enough to encounter when you're walking around a city to encounter a building by folks like Frank Lloyd Wright or Frank Gehry or Renzo Piano or Antoni Gaudi. Imagine one architect behind all this diversity of design. But so it is with that far more intricate and diverse and beautiful created world in which we find ourselves. One architect, one designer, one to be praised. You may remember from the first half of Psalm 104 that this is a psalm of praise. The psalmist is looking at what God has done in the world, remembering his acts of creation and giving praise, calling on his whole being to worship, to bless the Lord, O my soul, because he is very great. He is clothed with splendor and majesty. And his very greatness can be seen in reflection upon the created world. And then looking upon the days of creation, you may remember this is a type of hymnic commentary or a reflection on Genesis 1 following roughly the days of creation. He reflected on days 1 through 4 in last week's half of Psalm 104. And this week we're going to see him reflecting on days 5 and 6. And the psalmist praises God. How quickly our focus can turn from praise of the Creator to consumption of the creation. And this psalm calls us not to take creation for ourselves, but to trace the sunbeam back to the sun, as C.S. Lewis put it, and to give praise where it is due for these wonders that we see around us. The psalmist is praising God for his acts of creation and his acts of providence. You may remember that includes how he took the waters and, and dispelled the chaos to create a place for life. And then he turned those waters of death into waters of life that gave springs in the valleys that brought forth grass and plants to feed the created animals and the birds. And he gives life abundantly to be enjoyed. And he sustains the rhythms of the days and the seasons with the moon and the sun. And all this simply reflects his faithfulness. And for that, we give him praise. 
Now, in this part of the psalm, starting with verse 24, we come with a reminder of God's wondrous works. The very first verse sounds very similar to the very first verse. It says, O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. His eyes have returned again to the greatness of his God. And he reiterates his praise to God for the acts of creation and providence. And so starting here, we will look through this in three parts. First of all, the creation and providence. Creation and providence. Second of all, spiritual life in verse 30. And then after that, Christian living. That starts in verse 31. Creation and providence, point two is spiritual life, and then point three is Christian living. Let's look at verses 24 through 29 and the creation and providence of God. Main point is, again, that God's creation and his providence are so vast and intricate and magnificent that they are only properly used in worship of God. He made manifold creatures, we see in verses 24, 25, and 26. And the psalmist is thinking back to all these things that he's already reiterated in the, in the first 23 verses. But he also looks forward to what's coming next. There's this ocean with great diversity, the great and wide sea, with its creatures innumerable, both great and small, even Leviathan, which God formed to play in it. Look at verses 24 and 25. Every line has a mention of the magnitude of what God has done. First of all, verse 24, how manifold are his works. And then the second half of 24, in wisdom you have made them all, and the earth is full of your creatures. Verse 25, here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures, innumerable. These, these words are showing how vast and incomprehensible this is. Things both small and great, even Leviathan, the most feared creature by many ancient Near Eastern peoples, God made that even to play in the sea. The variety of these manifold creatures is remarkable from the microscopic bacteria in the ocean to the largest creatures on the planet, from camouflage dirt-colored crustaceans to the vibrant fish with built-in lights. The diversity of ocean life is only barely apprehended by the most advanced of human science. As we mentioned last week, a recent exploration of a region of the ocean between Mexico and Hawaii has discovered 5,000 new species that were prior unknown. And 95% of the, ocean, 95% of the oceans remains unexplored by humankind. How vast is our God, and how manifold his creations. So you see the psalmist now is reflecting on day five of creation, looking at the sea creatures. He mentioned, of course, the sky creatures before, uh, and now he focuses in on these sea creatures, the sea that is great and wide, and then moves his focus specifically to Leviathan. Now, there is, of course, disagreement as to what exactly Leviathan is a reference to. Perhaps it's a name that simply represents a great whale. After all, the, the great blue whale is the largest creature on earth. These things are almost 100 feet long. They weigh over 440,000 pounds. And their babies are born weighing almost 9,000 pounds. Their stomach is filled up with over a ton of food 
and they can eat up to 16 tons of food every day. These creatures are mammoth. Maybe that's what's being referred to here as the ships go out into the sea and see the tail come up over the surface of the water. They, they describe this Leviathan creature. But this word also probably carries connotations of that Canaanite seven-headed sea creature, the sea monster that was feared for the power of this legendary creature. But to God, either way, it's just a sea creature. To God, he made it to play in the water. And while Leviathan was the dread of sailors across the ancient Near East, it's a pet for God that he made to play in the water, to splash about, to do somersaults and flips. It reminds me of how kids can be scared of the dark. You know what I mean? At night, and and I say kids, even though this probably applies to many of us now too. At night, when there's that new sound or a shadow, everything combines in your mind to spark your brain awake and you convince yourself that someone must be hiding behind the door and your heart starts pounding And you cry out in fear, and as soon as your rescuer comes into the room and turns on the light, you realize it's a hoodie hanging on the back of the door. So Leviathan is to God, a hoodie on the back of the door with no more power than a garment. No matter how much this sea creature terrifies finite humans, it is a pet to God. Kind of like those cedars of Lebanon from from earlier in the psalm. They carry that legendary significance for the people of Israel. And from them, they made the most magnificent buildings of the day. Also, Leviathan carried this legendary significance. And both of them serve to illustrate that the powers that are feared are indeed powerless in comparison to Yahweh, in comparison to God. The towering trees are simply trees that God gives water to so that the birds can have a place for their nests. And the terrifying Leviathan is simply God's pet that he made to do somersaults in the sea. Ultimately, it's not about who Leviathan is. It's used to point us to who God is, to show us God's splendor and majesty highlighted here in this example, in this hymn, in this psalm. The existence of all of creation, even creatures of the deep, The existence is there to give glory to God. We see in verses 27 and 28 that this God who has created these vast creatures also gives good things physically and spiritually to his creation. These all look to you, verse 27 says, from the smallest bacteria to the largest of whales. These all look to you. O God, to give them their food in due season. Nothing is accepted. Even the greatest creatures who we would say are at the top of the food chain, they depend on God for their life, for their food. And when God gives, they gather up. This sounds a lot like the Israelites in the wilderness gathering up the manna. God reminds them time and again that he's the one who gives them good things. It's from his hand alone that they feed. And notice how the psalmist describes it as God's open hands. God is a God with open hands who gives to his people freely that they might gather and be filled. And he doesn't give bad things to his children. Difficult things, yes. Trials, yes. Discipline, yes. These are all good things. The Lord gives good things. 
This is that same word that God used when he looked back at all creation when it was done and said, it is very good. And so the psalmist says, God gives good to his creation. This refers to physical, physical gifts. Jesus talks about this. He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Your heavenly Father knows. And Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, reminds us as well, when Jesus prays, give us this day our daily bread. We are people who try to accumulate, and we try to define our value by how much excess we have, but God gives us our daily food, to gather as is needed. And he does the same with spiritual gifts. In Matthew 7, we read, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Luke understands this to be in reference to the Holy Spirit. God spiritually gives himself to his people when they ask. We'll look at this in more detail shortly, but it's a reminder that when God opens his hand and gives and we gather up, we are gathering good things from our God, both physically and spiritually. And so we see God's character. He's a generous God. And our response then properly is gratitude, to say thank you. And that thank you is its own type of praise in which we say with our souls, bless the Lord, O my soul. Thank you, O God. Verse 29 turns this whole discussion into a negative tone. You may remember if you're uh, with, us, with us on Sunday evenings, this antithetical parallel. I won't go into any more detail, but verse 28 says one thing. Verse 29 says it, but in the negative, to make the point and to drive it home. Verse 29 says that if God withdraws his presence, death is immediate. Look at verse 29. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. After all those reminders of generosity, the psalmist makes this sobering point. It's like if God were to remove his presence, it would be like sucking the oxygen out of a room. Well, for those who like Marvel, it's like Thanos snapping his fingers. Immediate death. When you withdraw your face, they are dismayed. And this is God's face of blessing which when removed is is like a curse. Like Deuteronomy 31 verse 17 says, then my anger will be kindled against them on that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be devoured and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. If God were to withdraw his presence, we would cease to exist and evil and troubles would come upon us. And in the famous benediction that we will receive at the end of this service, it says the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When God turns his face upon us, there's blessing. And so in verse 29, if he were to hide his face, we would be dismayed. The blessing removed, we would be no more. And this is parallel to this analogy 
in verse 29 about removing your breath. If God were to take away breath, then we die. And we'll get into this more when we look at the Spirit creating in verse 30. But this is a reminder, looking back, this is, this is really referencing back to the flood when God took away the breath. Because that word die is used multiple times there in that story of the flood. They died as the result of the flood. And that God in His justice can take away breath, can remove His Spirit, and that those waters that had been held at bay by His breath have now come back and overwhelmed and killed. And then those who die return to the dust. This verse probably for you reminds you of that creation account of mankind in Genesis 2, where God created man from the dust. And in Genesis 3, where the curse of sin has led mankind to work the ground from which he came all the days of his life, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return, we hear in that curse in Genesis 3. So it is if God were to take his presence from us. We are so entirely dependent. I remember when I was a kid running away from home, probably six or seven years old, maybe eight or nine. Uh, And I packed up a bag of belongings with the help of my parents. And I set off into the big world. I don't remember what I had in my bag, probably some water, probably some snacks. But I would guess I probably had no clothes because my parents knew how long this journey would last. After five minutes, it hits you. You're in a tough world. There's no one here to help you. I have no money. I have nowhere to sleep tonight. I have no breakfast tomorrow. And of course, that might be the biggest fear. What about lions and tigers and bears? Oh my. We are helpless in this world, like a child running away from home. Or even more, like a toddler kicking to get out of his mother's hands. Or even more, like a child in the womb. You and I, even right now, are dependent in this moment for this very next breath on our God. And He gives us good things. He's provided all things necessary for life and godliness. He's brought you into the family of Christ by adoption and has given you life in the Savior who died to reconcile you to Him. And He has taken your frame of dust and given you eternal, abundant, dependable, unfading, incorruptible, unimaginable, glorious life if you are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us of how we are of the dust, but how God has made us heavenly. For the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, Paul writes. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So we praise God for his wondrous acts of creation and of sustenance. And we actively consider our dependence upon him. How often do you think about how much you need him? How much do you remind yourself that you are like a kid who has run away from home? You need your God. Let's actively consider his magnitude. Let's actively consider our finitude. And let's be grateful, dependent people. Now you say, if that was point one, we will not make it today. 
Don't worry, points two and three together are about the same as point one. So we look at that creation and providence, and now we turn our attention to the spiritual life in particular that God gives. Because verse 30 emphasizes the creation by the Spirit. And so we see that as God gives physical life, so He gives and sustains spiritual life through regeneration, through justification, through sanctification, and through glorification. We'll unpack these here in a moment. But we have to remember the backdrop here. Verses 5 through 9, we see God's majestic power in creation. We see in verses 10 through 18, the variety of creatures and God's sustenance of them. Verses 19 through 23, how we respond in gratitude for God's faithful continuation of the days and of the seasons. And what we just looked at, His manifold works. So as God breathed the first breath to begin all this, He breathes our first spiritual breath and gives us regenerated life. He regenerates us, that we might live. It says in verse 30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created. And it's helpful for us as we look um, at this word spirit. It means the Holy Spirit, but it also means breath or wind. And so you may recall that That stunning scene, the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. The valley was filled with dry, dead bones, and these bones represent the elect of God. They're hopeless on their own. Like you and me, they're dead in their sin, hopeless in this life. But by the work of the Spirit, by the the breath, the wind of God blowing on them, they are given life. This is regeneration. It says in Ezekiel 37, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. It's only the spirit who can give us life. You and I on our own are incapable of bringing ourselves to life. It would be like looking at a dead dog and calling it to you. It cannot come. It must first be given life. 1 Corinthians 2 also talks about this. Paul says, Now we have received the Spirit who is from God so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And Titus 3 says specifically, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We need that Spirit's work to breathe life into us. And God does. He breathes the spiritual life of regeneration into the carcasses of dead souls. And He gives them life like He made Adam from the dust. And we need His Spirit. We need Him to initiate. We need Him to give spiritual life. And He does give eternal life to all who believe. And this is where we turn our eyes to justification. Jesus uses that imagery from Ezekiel 37 when He's talking with Nicodemus in John 3. You may know that conversation. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that is regenerated, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The wind blows, the spirit, the breath blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. John 3, 16 tells us that God gave his only son so that whoever believes may have eternal life. This life that God gives by His Spirit is the source, the only source of salvation. 
And we have to receive this gospel of life by faith. But even that faith, you know, is not something you have earned. Ephesians 2 tells us that God gives faith, and this faith is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So God then sees all those who have trusted in Jesus, who have trusted in Jesus' righteousness, and he calls them righteous. Therefore, it is in Christ himself that we receive the eternal life as the reward for our righteousness, which is actually Jesus' righteousness, but really now is on our account as well. This doesn't make sense to the dead soul. This is not natural or intuitive. These are spiritual truths. These are the way God has designed the gospel and salvation, and it should drive us to say thank you and to praise him, to bless the Lord, O my soul, for the gift of life, for the ability to understand spiritual truths and to see Jesus in his beauty. And verse 30 also reminds us that as the Spirit comes forth and they are created also, God renews the face of the ground. This too is a reminder of what happened in Genesis 2. From the face of the ground, which had previously been indistinguishable from the waters of chaos, God brings life and he made man from that face of the ground and and he brought forth vegetation and plants and trees to be a garden of life on the face of the ground. And so he does in the barren, hard soil of the human heart where he gives life and grows life. And what does that look like in a believer? Someone who has been given the Spirit, who has been brought to life, what does it look like? Well, it's a few things that looks like obedience, first of all. The heart that has been regenerated loves the light. The hypocrite hates the light being shed on his sin. The heart that has been given life can say with David, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. As Ezekiel Hopkins wrote hundreds of years ago, the regenerated person strives for obedience. And although we will be imperfect in our obedience, we restlessly aspire to obey. That's what it looks like to be alive, is to obey. And there are other various things. God gives wisdom, as we see in James 1. And he gives other spiritual gifts and functions within the church. And he gives special revelation and and so much more. But also, one that a life that has been regenerated and is being renewed in the Spirit is one who has comfort. You obey, you have comfort. And when you find your spiritual life drained, maybe I'm describing you right now. You may be... Your, your life, you feel like you are empty, running on empty, and maybe there is sin that is chilling the warmth of your relationship with God. Or maybe you feel like God has withdrawn His Spirit and has given you unbearable trials. What a renewal there is, what a revival there is to be accompanied by the Spirit's closeness once again, to be filled with the gracious conviction of sin, to be able to identify the problem is my sin and the Lord has a solution, to receive that assurance of forgiveness, to have that heart-cutting illumination of the Word, to have that sweetness of fellowship that we find in God's church with those who share the bond of the Spirit. And again, that gracious application of Christ's work to our lives anew as we hear the gospel And lean upon Christ again. This is the comfort and the renewal that we receive as we live in the Spirit. 
And it doesn't stop on this life, in this life. We have that hopeful anticipation of life beyond the grave and of glorification with Christ. And Revelation 21.5 says, I am making all things new. And we look forward to that restoration as well. And we respond with gratitude and praise. And we're coming to all that very soon here in point three. And so we look at God's creation and providence and we look at the spiritual life that he gives to his children and we praise God for that work of Jesus. We praise God for his spirit who he has given to us, who has given us life and who holds us close and we actively live in dependence upon that spirit, living according to the spirit rather than according to the flesh. So now let's look at Christian living. What is Christian living? If you look at verses 31 through 35, you'll see, you may glance through it and see that Christian life is one of praise. It's a life of worship. The proper response to God's gift of life is a life of worship. God's relationship to his creation draws out worship, and it's the whole point of creation. All these verses leading up to the show his magnitude to give him praise, and you and I are a part of that, designed to give him praise, given physical life, to give him praise, given spiritual life, to give him praise. The earth is once again put in its proper relationship to God here in these verses. We are the creation, he is the creator. His glory endures forever, we see in verse 31. When God even looks on the earth, it trembles. When he even touches the mountains, they smoke like Israel had seen at Mount Sinai. But this imagery proves God's nearness to his creation and his desire for its flourishing and his desire to be in relationship with his people. God's glory endures forever. But in contrast, what about creation? What about you and me? Our beauty is simply derived from God. His is eternal. Ours has a beginning and it is derived from him. Yet God, when he finished making all his creation, looked at it and said, it is very good. For it was functioning properly in praise to him. Independence upon the creator. And that was its greatest sense of delight and of life. And it pleased God to see things so very good as they depended on God and as they worshiped God. And the psalmist then declares the desire to see a return to that kind of God-centered existence when he says, may the Lord rejoice in his works as we depend on him, as we give him praise. May he rejoice. You know full well that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Verses 33 and 34 tell us how to do that, in part. First of all, very specifically, singing. It says, sing, and then he also says, sing psalms, that is, uh, or sing praise, that is to sing melodies to God. Singing uses your body, it uses your mind, and for some it uses up your dignity to give praise. But it's not about what the people next to you think when you're singing. It's not about whether your tune is on pitch only one note in ten. Make all the visitors look at you puzzlingly for the way that you simply focus on the glory of God and open up your voice to give him praise and to sing melodies to him. You let go of how you look and how you sound and you belt out a melody to God. He's worth it. 
It's about what he thinks, not the people around you. And your oversized anxiety about your tiny reputation doesn't deserve an ounce of consideration in comparison to the eternal glory of our God. And in comparison to the fact that he has done manifold works in incredible wisdom. Sing praise to your God, even if it's a bit noisy. Make that joyful noise. And Paul reiterates the command in the New Testament for us to sing praise. And it's the kind, uh, he's, de- he's detailing what the Christian life looks like, and he includes singing. As a part of growing in Christ, it's sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And while melodies are not the only way to worship, they are certainly a way that God has designed and commanded us to worship him. So when we sang that psalm, Psalm 104, in those six long verses, you notice the piano dropped out. It's not because our pianist got tired. The point is so that our voices are accented, so that we can intentionally lift our voices in praise to our God as the fulfillment of this command to sing psalms and hymns and to sing as verse 33 says, sing to the Lord as long as I live, sing praise to my God while I have being. And you notice that devotion that's in there. He says, as long as I live and while I have being. This does not mean until death do us part, actually, because death will not do you part from your God. Your praise that you sing today is the beginning of your eternal praise. And we will continue to praise our God from this forth into from this moment forth into eternity if you are in Christ. For death will not have the final say. And as long as you have being, you will praise your God. Our eternal worship has already begun. And you notice in verse 34 the point of all this is to please him. The goal is to please the Lord, not man. For we rejoice in the Lord, not man. We are all worshipers. We all worship something. You've heard that time and time again. We worship something. And this calls us to once again worship the one who is worthy of it. This calls us again to sing praise to the God who is worthy of that praise. Is your goal to be pleasing to people? Is your goal to be pleasing to an idea in the world? Is your goal to be pleasing to yourself or pleasing to a certain image? If so, you are worshiping something other than God. Your design is to be pleasing to the Lord and to worship Him. As the manifold creation's purpose is to give glory to God, so is yours. So is mine. Your actions and your thoughts and your loves and your songs are designed to give praise to the Creator. And any use of them otherwise is misuse and is a withholding of due honor to God at very least. But let me put it in more severe terms. To use what God has created for His glory to glorify anything else is damnable sin. Verse 35 sounds a little bit disjointed from the rest of the psalm at first glance. Verse 35, the psalmist says, Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. What this is showing actually in the psalmist's heart 
is an increasing love for what God loves. What this shows is that heaven is going to be a place of such purity and perfection that our desires will be holy like God's desires. And verse 35, will not feel disjointed on that day because sin and wickedness and evil have no place in the presence of the holy God. And so the psalmist can say, I want to see sin eradicated and I want to see the wicked gone because this creation was designed to glorify God. And sin and wickedness and evil don't glorify God. And he wants to see everything working as it is designed to give glory to God. And his heart increasingly loves what God loves as he praises him more and more. This isn't personal vindictiveness towards sinners, but this is glorying in the perfections of God and in his creation in anticipating that final, glorious, eternal dwelling in his house. And so as we praise the creator and we seek to glorify God and we celebrate the renewal of all things and we rejoice over the eradication of all sin and death, we realize all these things are impossible without Jesus Christ. All of these things come together in the person of Jesus Christ. He is that word who was with God in the beginning and without him was not anything made that was made. He is worthy of worship and all these grand designs we see in the world around us. They pale in comparison, the buildings that we might see pale in comparison to the incredible design that we see in what Christ has done. And he's worthy of worship. He is the one who eradicated sin and death, who has killed your true enemy. And in Christ, sinners are consumed from the earth and the wicked will be no more because of his power over sin and death. If anyone is in Christ, he is that new creation that is spoken of. And under the establishment of his universal reign, all things will be made new. I look forward to that day when we're gathered around the throne. And it's not going to be any less magnificent than this earth. It will be far more so. We will see all the nations gathered together in the presence of God, lifting their voices, giving their bodies, giving their hearts and their souls, their voices, their minds to praise their God. Manifold works. Things that we can't even comprehend. We look forward to that. And that will be... That will take this praise that we participate in these days and take it up not just a notch, but far higher than we could ever imagine today. Let us then bless the Lord. Let us bless Jesus Christ with our souls and with our whole beings, with songs in this sanctuary, with shouts of his glory as we observe creation, with lives of obedience, with hearts of gratefulness for his work in our hearts. He has given his people new life. Let us praise him then with our whole lives. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Wonderful, holy, magnificent God, you are worthy of praise and nothing else is. Would we use all these gifts that you've given us not to consume them for our good, but to reflect your glory back to you and to sing your praise. Would you be with us now? Would we lift our voices with joy and with purpose as we give glory to you and as we prepare to commune with one another and with the risen Christ? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.